Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone. Welcome to Talking Tudors, episode 164. I hope you're all having a wonderful weekend and thank you so much for joining me. In case you missed my message in the last episode, I recently shared some important news about the podcast. I'm in the process of transitioning the Talking Tudors membership platform from Podbean Patron to Patreon. Among the reasons for this change are that Patreon offers multiple ways for me to connect with my wonderful patrons and provides me with the necessary tools to create a really engaging and interactive community. This change will also allow me to create additional content like exclusive videos, behind-the-scenes pics and vlogs, blog posts and listener polls. Importantly, it will also allow listeners to pledge their support in their own local currency, which will hopefully avoid any nasty bank fees. My podcast remains free because of the generosity of my patrons, so they are tremendously important to me. The truth is, the larger my support base, the more podcasts and fun tutor content I can produce. I would be overjoyed if you'd consider supporting my work on Patreon. Please visit patreon.com slash talking tutors. Once you sign up, you will get immediate access to more than 20 patron-only posts. Join the Talking Tutors Patreon family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be eligible to enter all patron-only contests. July's prize is a two-volume book set that explores representations of Mary I in writing, in literature, and other textual sources. They retail for $125 each, so a huge thank you to Dr. Valerie Schutte for sponsoring this incredible prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. On the weekend of the 30th and the 31st of July, I'll be speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Norton about her book, The Temptation of Elizabeth Tudor, and the distressing events that took place when the young Elizabeth went to live with the newlyweds Catherine Parr and Thomas Seymour. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtutors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tutors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTutors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to discuss the Dudley family is Dr. Joanne Paul. Joanne is a writer, historian and broadcaster working on the history of the Renaissance, Tudor and early modern periods. Joanne is a BBC, AHRC New Generation thinker and senior lecturer in early modern history at the University of Sussex. She has published with Cambridge University Press, Ideas in Context series and has been widely praised for her work on Thomas More, William Shakespeare, Machiavelli and Thomas Hobbes. 
The House of Dudley is her acclaimed history of the Dudley family. Picked as a Times Book of the Week and Book of 22, The House of Dudley also garnered excellent reviews in The Telegraph, The Sunday Times, Mail on Sunday, Literary Review, Spectator, and was also featured in History Today in BBC History magazine. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Welcome back to Talking Tudors, Joanne. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. It's so wonderful to be back again. I know, it was a long time ago that we actually chatted the first time, so I'm really excited to have you back. It would be really great if you could just introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. I'm Dr. Joanne Paul. I'm a historian of the Renaissance and early modern periods, particularly in England, which means I talk a lot about the Tudors. <laughs> I am a senior lecturer at the University of Sussex and I've worked in universities for ooh, almost a decade now. Studied history as well as politics um, and did my PhD in London. 
and now uh, have started to write for popular audiences a little bit more, um, as well as those very expensive, very musty academic tomes. Yes, that can be very expensive. You're not wrong there. Uh, far too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we're actually here to chat about your fabulous new book, and I'm so excited. So The House of Dudley, A New History of Tudor England. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what they can expect to find in your book and maybe what inspired it as well? I always love those stories. A little bit of everything really, I think, is in there. I mean, I really set out to try to paint a picture of Tudor life for uh, the people who I document in, in this book, which is the Dudley family. So I always set out in writing to think about not just events, but scenes and to try to furnish those scenes, which required, you know, furniture <laughs> and a description of, of what things looked like, smelled like, tasted like when I could, felt like. Um, and so uh, hopefully it's a sort of immersive reading experience. And it touches on most major events um, in the 16th century because um, the Dudleys were were there. They were there for just about everything. It was it was joy writing the book because they were always where I needed them. <laughs> to be um they were in which is everywhere and so um there's battle scenes there's childbirth scenes there's deathbeds disease there's weddings every every part really of, of Tudor life I think is is at some point represented and in terms of the inspiration I I came across well it really started for me where where the book begins, which is a clandestine manuscript that circulates the Elizabethan court, um, which acquired the name Leicester's Commonwealth. And it was really this, this slander of not just Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, but of his whole family, this tribe of traitors, uh, this evil race among men, as, as it refers to them. Um, and I came across that while I was doing research for my PhD. And I thought, I mean, what is going on <laughs> with this family? Because obviously, you know, I'm, I'm sure not everything in Leicester's Commonwealth is true, but it is three generations that get very, very close to the throne and end up on, on the block. Um, because although Robert survives, his, his brother Guilford doesn't. It's, you know, what, what could possibly be going on with the culture of this family? Every family has a culture. This Leicester's Commonwealth tries to suggest that the culture of, of this family is ambitious and Machiavellian and murderous and traitorous and everything else. And so I wanted to understand not just the individuals in the family, but the family as a whole. Uh, and that really sparked this book. Fantastic. And I think if you've been learning about this period or studying this period for any length of time, you would have come across the Dudleys at some point. As you said, they're there basically, they're everywhere really throughout the Tudor reign. But just in case some people are new to the Tudors and Tudor history, do you want to tell us a little bit about the Dudleys and maybe how they did come to prominence? Absolutely. Um, if you're new to Tudor history, welcome. I think the Dudleys are a fantastic way into it. The Dudleys start really um, in terms of their importance and their prominence with the first figure that I really spent time with in this book, Edmund Dudley. And uh, he is the eldest son of a younger son of a baron. So he's not very important. <laughs> Studies the law, um, a sort of niche, very academic branch of the law on the king's prerogative and medieval rights. And he, by all rights, sort of should have been nobody um, and, and not important to history at all, except that at just that point that uh, he's becoming known in some circles um, for this niche academic interest. Henry VII is, he's lost his, his eldest son. He's becoming worried about his dynasty. And he starts to think that accumulating coin 
is going to be the best way to secure uh, his his reign and, and the reign of his son, Prince Henry. And so all of a sudden, this niche academic interest um, and expertise that Edmund Dudley has becomes immensely useful to Henry VII. Um, and so from there, the Dudleys sort of get this foot in to the Tudor court. And once, once you know, I don't want to spoil too much, but <laughs> once Edmund's gone, his son John is able to, to rise through the court of Henry VIII. And this has a lot to do with his mother, actually and this is this is one of the big revelations i think we know it to be true but one of the things that i think really became clear when i was working on this book is how much of a role the women of the family have in securing the family's position um, and recovering the family's position i think most importantly so when edmund dies he's executed it's his it's his wife john's uh, mother who marries the king's uncle and almost certainly has a role to play in ensuring that her young son, John, recovers from the stain of, of treason on his family. So I don't want to take you through the whole, <laughs> no, <laughs> the whole no. story. No, um, that was great. It is, yeah. it, is, it is this story of coming in often on the strength of circumstance and um, connections, often female connections, rising, 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 and then falling. And, and this, this sort of repeated rise and fall until you get to the end with Robert Earl of Leicester. Yeah, I think that's what makes it so captivating, their story, because we do have those highs and lows. It's like a roller coaster, isn't it? And you're like, not sure what's going to happen next. And I love what you were saying about the women in the family, because I think uh, so often when you dig a little, you do find that it's the women in a lot of these big, prominent Tudor families that are consolidating power, even if it's maybe done quietly or not as public, of course, as their husbands and sons. But they are there, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we're very, very lucky that in this case, we have at least some evidence of that, because I think so often it isn't on the page, um, because as you say, it isn't, it isn't public, it isn't recorded. We might assume that they have something to do with it, um, but we can't really know. Whereas I think with the Dudleys, we're very, very lucky in that we have, uh, so for instance, in the second generation, John's wife, Jane, uh, Duchess of Northumberland, we have her will, we have some of her letters. And so we know the work that she's doing to restore her family after the succession crisis of 1553, um, the, the Lady Jane Grey affair. And, and so we, we have clear evidence of, of how hard she's working. And we have clear evidence of the fact that it works um, because her son's pardons are dated to the date of her death. Um, and so we have this very clear connection that it is her work that restores the Dudley family. And we're not always so lucky to have that right in front of us. And so do you, you mentioned Edmund Dudley and a few of the other Dudleys. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about some of the, the people you focused on and maybe also what role they, they played at the Tudor court as well? Yeah, so it's, it's three generations and sort of half of a fourth um, in the epilogue that I focus on. And, and the big names, and they're all male, <laughs> that we associate with each of those generations are, are Edmund Dudley, John Dudley, and, and Robert Dudley. And most of the time when we encounter the Dudleys, we are encountering these three figures. Although I think one of the things I wanted to do in this book was to think about intergenerational legacy and, and the relationships across generations as well as within them, because I think that was incredibly important at the time. And slicing that up is unhelpful, I think, for a study of the past. But I really didn't want to write a book <laughs> that just did Edmund John 
and Robert, um, because that isn't the family. And so what I did was try to recover wives, brothers, sisters, the occasional cousin to try to get a sense of the entire family dynamic. And what that does, I think, is really show how networked the family was. So to give an example, and, and one of my favorites is Mary Dudley Sidney, um, who's who's the sister to Robert Dudley, who becomes Earl of Leicester. Um, and she marries Henry Sidney and, and is, you know, sort of known to history, of course, as a Sidney. She she was born a Dudley and very much remains a Dudley. Her allegiance is, is with the Dudley family. And we have these great moments where she's um, almost negotiating diplomatically on, on behalf of her brother. She's sitting down with ambassadors, really holding her own as, as quite a, a young woman. And she really teaches her son, Philip Sidney, who we might know as the poet, Philip Sidney, um, that he is a Dudley. And, and almost first and foremost, he's, he's a Dudley. And even his father, Henry Sidney, says, you've got to keep in mind your power and responsibility that comes from the fact that you are a Dudley. Um, and he declares later in life, I am a Dudley. And so the, 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 the power of this family connection and, and almost ethos or, or, as I said, culture, I think is very important. And it allows us to see these historical figures not only in a different light, but perhaps a more accurate to the time perspective and I think it allows them us to see them doing things that actually is, is quite amazing. Um, so the fact that Mary Dudley Sidney is, is negotiating with these ambassadors is, is huge, really. And it really shows the power of, of her as a woman in the Elizabethan court. So returning to this theme of networking, which I think is really interesting, but maybe let's just sort of widen the net a little bit more. I always love to hear about how these big prominent families got on with each other during the um, 16th century. So how did the Dudleys get on with the other prominent families? And of course, you know, like the Howards spring to mind, but there are others. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely one of the interesting stories that runs um, through this this book and through history is the either friendship and allegiance or or very blatant enmity <laughs> that exists between families. You know, um, we watch Game of Thrones, for instance, and, you know, House of Lannister and House of whatever, Stark, and, and how they either get along or they don't. Um, and we think, oh, that's, you know, fantasy. And I mean, that was that was really what was happening here. Um, so you mentioned the Howards, long-standing intergenerational hatred between the Howards and the Dudleys. They did not get on. And for various reasons, the Howards um, were this long-established noble family, though though they had just recently had their own brush with, with treason. Um, They're very conservative and religiously conservative as well. And so upstarts like the Boleyns and like the Dudleys, who were didn't have that long claim and uh, who tended to be reform in their religion, what we now think of as Protestant, were anathema to the Howard. Beyond that, we also add in personality. And um, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they just personally didn't get along as well. And so you see um, the Howards and members of the House of Howard through marriage or just um, allies and friends at various points trying to bring and successfully bringing the, the Dudleys down and then gloating over them. So one of the great sort of antagonists, I guess, of, of the book is, is Henry Fitzalan, who is married through the Howard family. And, and he really loves that he gets to bring John Dudley down. The other, I guess, 
two major families that the Dudleys interact with quite a bit are the Seymours and the Greys. Um, now, the Greys in particular, Edmund's wife, Edmund Dudley's wife, had been a Grey, Elizabeth Grey. And so there, there is a connection to the Greys there. And then, of course, it's Lady Jane Grey who marries Guilford Dudley. And we do see this uh, allegiance between the Dudleys and the Greys, um, which results in, in that ill-fated wedding and, and potential coup. The Seymours, I think, are the really, really interesting one um, because that begins in deep, deep friendship. The Seymours are like the Dudleys, uh, this sort of upstart family reform. And John and Edward Seymour become friends probably on the battlefield. Very, very young men grow up together. Um, their families uh, interact. Uh, there is, there's even a marriage um, between their children at one point. And although John Dudley is seen, and perhaps rightly, as the architect of the fall of, of Edward Seymour when he's um, Lord Protector, Duke of Somerset, he, he really does try to rehabilitate him. There's this, he, he defends him um, in the Privy Council, and there's a sense in which I'll, I'll get in trouble with this. Um, there's a sense in which um, he, he, you get the impression that he feels pushed to finally have him, him executed um, when he does. All the, all the Edward Seymour fans are going <laughs> to get on me for that. Um, but I, I think understanding the long, long, often intergenerational story of these families helps us understand why these events take place the way that they do and what they meant to the people who were participating in them. And I, I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's hard to escape the Tudor period once you come into it, because you kind of work out that in, in order to understand a family or an event really well, you do need to know what's come before. Um, you know, you just fall into this rabbit hole and you're stuck there forever. So it's a very nice thought, rabbit hole. It is a nice <laughs> rabbit hole. I've been there for 15 <laughs> years now and I don't think yeah. I'll be getting out anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> So you've already hinted at the fact that the Dudley name was, of course, tainted by a number of scandals. So I don't think it's going to be any spoilers here because I think most people know some of the major ones. But do you want to tell us some of those scandals that this family was involved in? Yeah. So as I said, each of these three generations of the Dudley family end up on the block for treason. And there is this sense in which when Leicester's Commonwealth refers to them as a tribe of traitors, I mean, legally, that's correct, right? They continually end up accused and convicted of treason. Um, the first is, is Edmund Dudley. He becomes very unpopular very quickly and really only has the king on his side. And so when the king, Henry VII, dies, he's left very vulnerable to the many, 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 many enemies um, that he has accumulated over just a few years. And so the charges that are uh, laid against Edmund Dudley are entirely fabricated. We can think of him as, as really that, that first victim of this tendency we see in the reign of Henry VIII, because it is Henry VIII who sees him executed, to um, have a minister fall and have these trumped up treason charges and have him executed um, while the king's off doing something else. He's on progress. And, and, and that really sets, I think, a pattern for, for Henry VIII. But it starts with Edmund Dudley. So he is accused of seeking to overthrow the monarchy, <laughs> trying to usurp the throne, considering regicide, all of that sort of stuff. There's absolutely no evidence that that was the case. And there's just highly, 
highly unlikely. Um, but what he was was immensely unpopular and for, for good reason, whether that was enough reason to, to see him killed in terms of the laws of justice, I would say no. But so he's, he's executed and that's that first stain of the block that, is, is, uh, that haunts the Dudley family. The next major controversy that they're caught up in, and, and there are lots throughout uh, Henry VIII's reign, because it's just, it's just pitfalls everywhere, right? <laughs> it's, it's um, you know, they're, they're very close to Anne Boleyn. There's a chance they're going to get swept up in the Catherine Howard affair. They're very close to Catherine Parr and Anne Askew, and so almost get caught up in that. But they manage to, to get through and then are very, very powerful in the reign of, of Edward VI, but it's the 1553 succession crisis and the reign of Lady Jane Grey, who is, of course, Lady Jane Dudley, really, because she's married to Guilford Dudley, that sees the major, and I think this is much more so than, than Edmund Dudley's execution, this is the, the, the major stain on them, the, the very, very momentous, I guess, event for this family, because um, John, as Duke of Northumberland, president of the King's Council, is seen to be involved in guiding um, or even dictating Edward VI's choice to pass the crown over his two half-sisters, Mary and Elizabeth, and directly to his cousin, Jane Grey, Jane Dudley, who has, is at this point John's daughter-in-law, and therefore John will become the uh, father to the, the queen and king consort. And they, they think, and everyone thinks, um, that this is going to be very successful as a coup. Even Mary... Uh, Lady Mary, Princess Mary's supporters think that she'll either roll over or flee the country. Um, and either way, the Dudleys win. And that's not what happens, as we know now um, with hindsight. But at the time, it was incredibly surprising that she fights back and she fights back effectively. And so John is, is forced to submit. The council changes sides and he's arrested uh, convicted of treason and executed. Now, unlike his father, he did exactly what he was accused <laughs> of. These were not trumped up charges, but he had the support of the monarch. He had the support of the Privy Council, but he's sort of left out to dry while everybody else um, is able to, to switch sides effectively to marry. And then his son, Guilford, along with Lady Jane Grey, are later executed because they're just, they, they become a rallying point. And so by the time we get to Robert Dudley, who becomes Earl of Leicester, he's got a grandfather who was executed for treason, a father who was executed for treason, a brother who was executed for treason, and everyone, you know, mostly has in living memory when his entire family tried uh, to, to take over the throne. And, and he was in the tower for quite a period as well, uh, having been convicted of, of treason and could have been executed at any point. And I think sometimes because we tend to separate out the generations and, and divide things according to the reigns. You know, we, we jump in with Elizabeth and, and Robert, and we have the potential to miss how heavy this burden of legacy is, how, how deep this stain um, that sits on him in, and, and therefore how amazing it is that he also rises so high and gets so close, that he's rumored to marry the queen, that he uh, is ennobled, that he leads her troops abroad, that, that he has such a position in the court. To rise up from 1553 and the legacy before that is, is really astounding. As you were speaking, I was just wondering, what do you think it is 
about Robert Dudley that so captivated and Elizabeth firstly and also do you think that it might have anything to do with the fact that obviously Elizabeth's mother was executed you know he, Dudley has the Robert has these you know the stain of execution on his family as well do you think that brought them together and obviously at a very young age they knew each other I think that there is a reading of their relationship that relies on on that early connection I haven't I'll admit I haven't been watching Becoming Elizabeth, but I suspect that's that's what they're doing in in that show. I mean, believe it or not, the evidence that we have for them being friends as children is is very scant. And um, he suggests it later in life. I think he says, you know, when when she was seven or something, she said that she'll never marry, um, which suggests, of course, that they knew each other. But he may have just been saying <laughs> that, right? Um, that's a great claim to make. Um, I knew her way back when. They would have been aware of each other, certainly. I mean, the Dudleys were hugely important in Edward's court. There's there's no way that they wouldn't have encountered each other at some point. But that idea that they have this deep, long-standing childhood friendship is a matter that we just can't we can't say for sure. And so it's not something, for instance, that I felt sure enough of to put in the book. And we don't have any evidence either that they really sort of discuss their parents, the loss of their parents, um, the stain of treason, any any of that. What we do know, and I think there's something more satisfying about, about focusing on, on what we do know, because we, we know a great deal, is that they do have this wonderful, many decades long, intense friendship and deep affection, something akin to love, whether romantic or otherwise. And they are very dedicated to each other. And it's, it's very, very beautiful when uh, you see their letters, when you see their interactions, they fall out a bunch of times as well. Um, it's a, so it's a very passionate relationship one way or the other. You asked uh, about why he's so appealing. I mean, <laughs> he's, he's a good looking fella. Um, I think, I, I, you know, I, I never underestimate um, the, the importance of, of a pretty face. He's good looking. I think he's charismatic. There's, there's evidence to suggest that he has a charisma about him. Um, but what we really definitely know is um, that he's a patron of the arts. He um, commissions far too many portraits of himself. Um, <laughs> I, always, does, I always he? joke. I always joke that he, you know, if you've given him a camera phone, it just would have would have been awful. But uh, but he, beyond that, he collects and commissions art of of all kinds, and there's um, been some very good work on that. And he's he's a patron of the universities, of science, of navigation, of uh, sort of every aspect of Tudor intellectual and artistic culture. It, he's based in, in Warwick as well. And so this, there's suggestion that there, there's some overlap with him in Shakespeare as well, although that's just circumstantial. And he's also a master of rumor and and of of connection and, and playing people off each other it's something that i i speculate um he learned from his mother um because his father's not so great at it um where she's she's quite she's quite savvy and you see him doing that again and again and again and he employs his siblings uh his siblings-in-law you see um henry sydney getting in on it as well at various points and he he manipulates rumor because in many ways that defines i think the elizabethan court is is the prevalence and power of rumor and he knows that and he he's the subject of it um, but i think in many ways he's also the orchestrator of it and and he's this this maestro that that plays upon rumor and and uses it to his advantage 
and can be quite um, merciless in it as well. It's a great moment in the book. I, I, I find it fascinating. I was, I was shocked and pleased in that way a writer is um, when I found it where he really throws someone under the bus, like a, a friend who's, who's gone out of his way to defend him, who's done everything he can to restore Robert's reputation at a time when it's really at its lowest with queen and country. And he throws this guy under the bus because it might, it might save him. He's, yeah, he's, he's not always the most endearing, but I think he's incredibly cunning. Yeah, it sounds captivating. And I think it's all that complexity that makes them so enthralling and captivating. And we, yeah. we just want to know more, obviously. Now, during the research of your book, who were the, the lesser known characters that you sort of came to feel a connection with? Maybe tell us a little bit about one or two of those. I mentioned a few already. So um, stop me if I'm, I'm repeating myself too much. But certainly uh, Jane Dudley, Duchess of Northumberland. I mean, she's not She's not unknown, but I think it's striking, for instance, that she only just recently got a full entry in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. She, uh, I think, has been overlooked for the importance of the role that she played, not just within her family, but in Tudor history more generally. Um, she grew up alongside her future husband, John. You know, there's, there's a deep childhood friendship and connection that endures into adulthood, that formative connection is 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 John and Jane. So they grow up together, they marry when she's 16, he's 21. They have many children together. I think it's 13. <laughs> and every suggestion that they liked each other's company <laughs> to have that many children. Can you can easily stop after about three or four. And uh, there's, you know, in, in the midst of all the scandal around the Dudley, there's never any suggestion of marital scandal, of um, mistresses or time spent apart or abandonment. And, and we do have evidence of that, for instance, in, in the marriages of uh, their son, Ambrose. So, you know, when it appears, we, we tend to know about it and we don't. Um, even Lester's Commonwealth can't dredge anything up about them having any any issues. Um, and, you know, they would if they could. So I, I think it's, a, it's an example of, of, of a successful marriage in the Tudor period. And she's, I think she's a huge part of the success of the Dudleys um, throughout uh, the reign of, of Henry VIII. You know, I was mentioning about the, the pitfalls, the, the traps really in the, in the reign of, of Henry VIII. And, and she is really, her connections are what see them through. She's a lady for Jane Seymour. She's part of the household of Anne of Cleves. Um, she's a dear friend of Catherine Parr. Um, she's one of the very few people at the wedding uh, of Catherine Parr to Henry VIII. It's a very small, almost secret wedding. And uh, she's standing there uh, alongside Lady Elizabeth and, and Lady Mary. So hugely prominent. And so the, again, these, these connections made between powerful women are really very crucial. Um, and I've already told you the story of, of how she fights for her family, um, for her husband, and then after his execution for her sons um, who are still locked in the tower. Um, and in this, um, her daughters join her, her daughters-in-law join her, and, and you get the sense of the, the women of the family really entering this new court under Mary I and, and doing everything that they can to, to forge these connections, particularly with the new Spanish court that comes in under Philip II. I've already mentioned Mary Dudley Sidney. I found as well that I was far more interested in her son, Philip Sidney, than I thought I was going to be, um, because he is sort of a big figure that people know about 
But I saw him in a very new light, I think, from this perspective of, of the Dudley family. I, I really think that we can't understand him at all unless we understand him in, in that context mm-hmm. as, as a Dudley. As I said, he himself declares him to be such. And his, spoiler, his very tragic young death, it's on Wikipedia, people know, <laughs> is, is in the context of fighting with the Dudley family and his uncle, uh, Robert Earl of Leicester is there with him at his death in in the Netherlands and writes to Francis Walsingham, who was Sydney's father-in-law, um, how they had both lost a son um, when they lose Philip. So you know he sees him not just as a nephew but as 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 a son. And I I think Philip returned that that feeling as as well. So that that context I think allowed me and hopefully people are reading it to see someone who's actually fairly well known in a completely new way yeah I think it's so important the context exactly because sometimes people just kind of pluck people and events out of like a vacuum and and we just lose so much don't we when we don't put together those threads and so I was thinking about you were saying John Dudley I hope I've got my Dudleys right John Dudley is executed (laughs) so how does the family you've talked about the the role that the women played during Mary's reign but how did they survive do they lay low or what do they do after the execution uh yeah not so much laying low it's not really a Dudley uh, (laughs) yeah that's not really yeah I don't think anyone ever suggested that to the Dudleys (laughs) uh immediately following the arrests and and the arrests are are very widespread um it's not just John and his sons but uh his sons-in-law and I think some of the women as well at the very least I mean many of them were in the tower anyway because that's where the court was for for Lady Jane Grey was but they're they're released earlier they're released first, um, the women, and, um, for instance, Henry Sidney. And as soon as she's released, Jane rushes to go and meet the Queen, who's, who's on her way into, into London, and is told um, when she's almost there that the Queen will not see her and she has to turn around and go back. And so she immediately sets to work writing letters um, because it is now a female court. Um, women are more important than they are, they're, they're more influential than they are in uh, a male-dominated court. And so she starts writing to women who know her to ask women who are even closer to the queen to intervene primarily on her husband's behalf because she thinks her sons are, are probably more safe, she's right, than her husband. And she talks about being sick at night, she can't sleep, she's violently ill, of course she would be, but is fighting nonetheless. That, that doesn't see any results, John, John is executed. And, and we see the next sort of wave, I guess, of effort to rehabilitate uh, the Dudley family when Mary I marries Philip II. And we have this Spanish court arrive um, because this is really an opportunity. And I, I think Jane is, is probably able to identify it as such. This is an opportunity to make powerful connections with a group of people that nobody wants to make connections with. There's there's a lot of animosity between the English and the Spanish when the Spanish come over. Um, there's talk of, you know, various knife fights and, and all of this. And so Philip and his courtiers need English support and the Dudleys have nothing to lose in supporting them. So uh, they, they form this alliance and even into Elizabeth's reign, they're still talking about how it was Philip who really saved them and how this connection between Philip and the Dudleys is, is so, so important. 
And we know from Jane's will that she's gifting um, people who are part of the Spanish court various requests to remind them that they, they said that they'd fight for her children. And so she expects them to do so. Um, and so when the um, Dudley brothers are, are released, they join this, this effort really to, to align themselves with Philip II. And so you see them, for instance, in, in jousts, which are designed to make Philip more, more popular with the English English love a good joust. Um, and so you see them performing essentially in these, participating in these jousts. And you also see them on the battlefield. So the war in France, Battle of Saint Quentin in 1557, the, the Dudleys are, are there at the forefront. And, and evidence suggests that they'd actually sold off some land, participated in loans, and you know, essentially thrown everything that they had in, in supporting Philip in France. And actually, um, one of the Dudley brothers doesn't make it back. That's sort of how committed they are. And it works. This allows them to be in a position when Elizabeth I comes to the throne to really take advantage of that. Yeah, so I, I was going to ask you, so when Elizabeth comes to the throne, is there a major shift in the family's fame and fortune, if you like? Or it sounds like they were already kind of on the way up again with making those connections. So it's interesting. We we think of sort of oh, Elizabeth comes in and boom, you know, that's that's the moment. Um, but as, as you say, it had been growing for some time. A lot of work had already been done. And it is really Philip II who at least sort of performatively, they suggest is, is the one who who saves them. It's not Elizabeth. You know, it, she they're already out of the tower. They, they've already been pardoned. And it isn't also immediate. Robert does become master of the horse right away, um, which is a very important position of especially proximity and thus influence with the monarch. Um, but he isn't, you know, he isn't ennobled. Um, he, he, he doesn't hold, um, he isn't made a privy counselor until much later. All of that is, is later. And, and there's several years really where his position is important, but not powerful. And um, so it's a slow process. Mm. Um, and she likes it that way, <laughs> right? <laughs> she doesn't want to give away too much exactly. too soon. Yeah. But what does happen very quickly is the rumors of a romantic connection, perhaps a sexual connection between the two of them and rumors that he might be the most successful of her suitors. And so that that also gives him a lot of influence and sway. People want to be friends with someone who might be the king. <laughs> um, and so I think that change is, is very soon into her reign. But the, the real power that, that he has and the real position that he has comes later. And Joanne, I just want to ask you quickly, because I know you have some things you need to do. What do you think was the greatest tragedy and maybe the greatest triumph that this family experienced and endured during the 16th century? Certainly the, the 1553 succession crisis was the, you talked about the roller coaster, right? <laughs> um, that is the lowest point for them. Not only was it a huge fall in, in position, they had gone from, you know, essentially ruling the Privy Council, working with King, who was still a minor. And then, you know, he, he was father-in-law and, and essentially father to the, the Queen for a short period, down to absolutely nothing. Everything is seized. We have the inventories of them going through their houses and selling every bit of their, their household off. Things that had great sentimental value are, are sold off, melted down. Many of them are given to the queen probably to reuse, for instance, in her coronation. It's, you know, 
it's just her, their lives are picked apart. Uh, it results in the death of, of both John and Guilford, as well as, I didn't even mention, the, the eldest son, uh, John, also named John, who falls ill in the tower and dies three days after he's he's released. So it's a great loss of life as well. Um, in terms of their greatest triumph, I, I think the inclination would be to find one that's that's lasting, because the, the highest that they really reach of course, is is also in 1553, but it's it's very very short lived and has a great cost attached to it. Um, so I suppose it is it is really Robert who who achieves their their highest and and most stable point and probably picks something in in the 1580s, maybe even right before his his death, where he's very very close the queen he's survived the scandal in the netherlands he orchestrates the armada speech that that we associate with her that you know a heart and stomach of a king body of a weak and feeble woman I've switched this around but you know <laughs> you know what I'm, I'm talking about he orchestrates that that speech that she gives to the troops and makes sure that it's recorded and in that speech it's often overlooked but she talks about how great he is as well and so in many ways and that's that's weeks before his death that is their highest point. The tragedy of it is um, that in a, in a way that's also short-lived, um, not in terms of legacy, we're still talking about it, but uh, he dies shortly there, thereafter um, and he leaves no, no legitimate children behind. So there is even a tragedy in that. Fantastic. So everyone listening, go and order The House of Dudley. Sounds amazing. I'm patiently waiting for my copy. Please, postman, deliver it to me soon. But I've heard such <laughs> incredible things about it. And I'm so eager to learn through this particular lens. I think it's really original what you've done. And, and I really can't wait. But I have just one last thing, I promise. And it's just a to you to take away. So a suggestion for, for our listeners to go out and maybe have a look at a song, a website, a book. What's your to you to take away, Joanne? It's a, it's a really difficult question because, of course, there's so many wonderful resources out there. I um, mean, I did include in the book, as, as one more final pitch, um, uh, some suggested reading. Um, oh, so really the books that I had beside me the whole time as, as I was writing. And so there's quite a few in there. But I guess I, maybe I, I have no idea if someone suggested it on um, your podcast before, but the Mary Rose exhibition is fantastic. For me, it's just down the road in Portsmouth. For others, it might be further away, but they've They've got some online resources as well that are wonderful. And it's great. It's got a great Dudley connection because he was Lord Admiral of the Navy during the Battle of the Solent when the Mary Rose goes down and he dines on the Mary Rose the night before. And so when you go into the exhibition, you can see plate marked with his Lord Lyle at that point with the Lyle seal because he's he's very much a part of of that that episode of history that's been so well preserved and is a fantastic experience for a visitor as well. I love the Mary Rose Museum. I actually haven't been since it's been uh, renovated, so I need I need to get there. I need to get back there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the thing if you've been before and haven't been since yeah. the refurbishment, it is a really very different experience than, than it was. And um, they're doing some things that uh, I haven't seen done elsewhere um, and I think are really effective. Wonderful. Well, once again, thank you so much for coming back onto the podcast and talking Tudors with us. Oh, it's always such a joy. I hope you have me back again. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. 
Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetutortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tutors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music